Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. We are like a week or so away from Therapy Reimagined 2020, our virtual conference this year. And due to a slight change of programming. We had a speaker who had to back out kind of unexpectedly. We are reviving a presentation that I'd mentioned that I was going to be doing earlier this year, back when we thought that this was going to be a live conference. And I had all of these wonderful plans to do a six-hour workshop on irrational ethics. And Katie and I decided kind of at the last minute to fill out our conference schedule that rather than doing a joint presentation together, we would be separating out uh, and doing our own presentations. So we'll talk a little bit about Katie's presentation next week. This week, we're going to talk about, at least give you a little teaser on my presentation (laughs) that will be happening on Thursday, part of the conference. My presentation is called... Irrational Ethics, How Current Standards Fail to Recognize Culture and Humanity. This is a workshop that I had originally conceived of, of being in person, doing lots of interactive stuff with the audience and transforming this over into not only a much shorter time, but also into a virtual experience. I've had to twist and tweak and pull some things out that once we do ever get this back into a real person phenomenon. (laughs) I do encourage you to come and join me for this. But at the core of this is, for all of us ethics nerds out there, there seemingly has been some large gaps in where our ethics codes are. And kind of all over the place. And some of these criticisms go back to the 1970s as far as our ethics codes, well, good to have kind of these aspirational ideas, get really specific in some areas and really vague in kind of what's the purpose in others. And to really get to a formulation of where we're at today, I dove into how were our ethics codes even made in the first place, which I think there may be like 12 of us on earth who really are interested in these kinds of things. (laughs) I was just thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So this is not a criticism of the ethics codes from kind of a present bias, but this is a, a brief history of how the ethics codes were made in order to get to how they continue to play out today. And our first ethics codes that we look at in their creation is the American Psychological Association's first code. 
And this is the only code that was ever done as a survey of the membership of, hey, send us in some ethical situations that have come up and maybe some reasonings behind it. And at the time, there was about seven or 8,000 psychologists in the United States. And they sent in a bunch of ethical stuff. And this committee of like 10, 12 people filed all of these things down, boiled them down into this nice little concise document that was 178 pages of ethics. <laughs> that's a lot of ethics. <laughs> that's, that's way too much. Well, in a development like this, it actually reflects where the field was at the time. Now, there's plenty of language from at the time that I'm not going to repeat here on the podcast that is littered throughout this document, but oh goodness, it is not the absolute worst words for minorities, but words that I'm just not going to repeat here on the podcast. I think that's a good idea. But this also leads us to understand that the foundations of our ethics code start from an inherently racist and classist and sexist way that when we consider who is psychologists in the 1940s while these surveys were being sent in, it's largely middle class, upper middle class, rich white men. And, you know, there was a token woman on the original APA Ethics Code Committee who was delivering Oh, this. thank goodness. I'm sure so that made all the difference. All the difference. But this is not representative of where the field is. And the aspiration of this committee was every decade or so that a new survey would be sent out and the ethics would be renormed. But as you can imagine, this is a massive undertaking, and especially as the number of mental health professionals grew whether it's through APA, whether it was through the precursor of the American Counseling Association, NASW, any of these, that rather than doing these survey building ethics codes, rather than being adductive, they chose instead to be deductive. And this means taking what was and paring it down and kind of adding to it. And so some of the justifications that go from one ethics code to another aren't renormed for the time of society that they're in. You know, so the remnants, after several iterations of this, is we still have foundations of principles that are based on 1940s upper-class white male ideas of what ethics are. Now, we've lost a lot of the language about racism and some of the terms of the time, but what we have instead are things that have followed through in ways that are now hidden under things like professionalism that end up hiding what these intentions are. And these still impact our field today. And this is more and more of a problem where my talk focuses on the limits of where our ethics codes are in looking at social issues. Yeah, we, we say things like we, we need to be aware of where our clients' social backgrounds are and the impacts that their history have on them. But as our field has grown and has included many more people from these marginalized communities, ranging from you know, more and more black therapists, more and more Latinx therapists, even in the last couple of decades, more and more women, the, the codes still hold to these standards that don't necessarily still hold true. So when you're describing all of this, I, I'm thinking about the process, the initial process. And so it was creating something that was new. 
and having these grand visions of doing it differently or, or kind of renorming, redoing this giant survey. And it seems even now, like it would be a lot easier to get data from folks because of technological advances, because of the ability to communicate quickly, to, to aggregate data easily, and yet they're not doing it. And I know you and I were, we're not speaking for CAMP, but we were on the board that approved the most recent ethics codes updates. And we're, I know we're not talking about CAMP's ethics codes right now, but I know how challenging it is to try to completely redo an ethics code because why throw away something that seems to be working? But what you're really saying is we're just kind of slowly shifting and, and carrying along with us the systemic, racist, patriarchal, you know, able, whatever, all the things. <laughs> we're, we're just dragging those along and, and couching them in different language. And so are you, is your, are you positing that we should throw it away and start new? Or are you, do you have a, a suggestion on like how ethics codes should be updated at this point? I do have suggestions for things that should be done there. And I will speak that I'm, I'm no longer on the camp board of directors. However, I am on the camp ethics committee now. And having discussions with people who've served on other ethics committees for other organizations and even recognizing the role that the ethics committees serve for each of these organizations now, these are very overwhelmed committees, that they are ones that don't necessarily have the time or the resources to really do all of the things that ethics committees are kind of taught to us that they end up doing that. Yeah. There's kind of the evaluative portion and the investigative portion of looking at therapists and members, potential unethical activities, but the amount of time and resources to actually do this, even with the technological advances that we may have to survey 30, 40, 50, 100,000 members to sit down and then take all of the information that they would send in, renorm the ethics codes would be a massive undertaking and sure. would take probably the better part of a decade, if not more, even with the advances that we have now. So we are left in kind of this lurch of we have a ethics code, which makes us a profession. You know, that's one of the standards of, of separating a profession of, you know, medical doctors, lawyers, mental health professionals versus something that might not have an ethics code, construction workers or blue collar workers in some way that don't necessarily need to have an ethics code. But what happens is when the original codes have the skewed perspectives of a privileged few at the core of the codes at the basis of what we're saying is here are the shared values of everybody within this profession. We have a hierarchical power that is inherent in these codes. And that still exists. And it's something that we can't get rid of because they still sound really good. There's no reason to really say, you know, don't act professional, but <laughs> when the definition of professional has changed brings to the second point, which is, we teach ethics incorrectly to many therapists. Now, a sample of leading up to this workshop, a very informal sample that I've done of about 25 to 30 therapists, as far as how were you taught ethics in grad school, the majority of them, 
iterate some version of we were taught ethics as laws. That mm -hmm. these are rules that we have to follow. And when I follow up questions with like, were you ever really taught how to think ethically? Were you ever really focused on here's an ethical decision-making process. Have you ever considered thinking about how you think? And most of them said, yeah, that was largely glossed over, if even brought up at all. And so when we're taught laws as ethics and we're not taught how to think ethically, we end up with this really rigid idea of what these rules are that doesn't allow us to actually serve as individuals within our ethics codes. That when we, you know, peruse through, all right, here's the list, I'm going to look at, all right, here's code 2.1473 that ends up being, all right, here's a hard and fast rule, but we don't look at it as in the entirety of the code and how the code relates to itself and how the code contradicts itself. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I'm always for critical thinking. And so this is what you're really talking about is that ethics should be taught as a basis, a sh shared values that guide the critical thinking on decision making. Mm -hmm. and, and when you said that ethics are taught as laws, I really feel like that's probably true across the board. I, I feel like I had, and I don't know it's so long ago, I don't know if it was grad school or if it was subsequent professor, uh, supervisors or training sites or, or different things where I was given a bit more to consider. But I think when when laws and ethics are equated as the same, I think those things, because I would also posit that people are taught laws as though they're ethics, even if laws don't make sense. That's a whole other conversation. Right. <laughs> you know, just because a law is a law, yes, you know, we're supposed to follow it, but it may not be in the best interest of our clients and the ethics codes. So when those are conflicting, whole other conversation, but just tossing that out there. But I think when we're taught that you must do this thing and not why and not how and, and what the purpose is, I think that becomes really problematic. And I think that that speaks to, in a lot of ways, some, some that therapy that's not good, right? Like if, I, if you rigidly hold to an ethics code that actually is harming your client due to some of these systemic racist patriarchal blah 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 blah. like if you stick to that that could be harmful and i think it's it's something where being able to do that critical thinking is important but how do we move away from these 
imperfect, I was going to say flawed, everything's flawed, but imperfect ethical codes to be able to have those discussions. Because I think if those of us, and I'm not saying I am, you are, but like people who are teaching ethics, if they were taught ethics as laws, and now they are teaching ethics and want to do it better, there's still a process that they would have to go through to be able to really do this work, right? To be able to really guide those conversations. I'm going to get to an answer on what you're asking here because. (laughs) But not yet. (laughs) Well, there's a really important point here in that when we're taught ethics as laws, it's almost kind of this authoritarian don't question what is being said. And when we end up following that, and we end up holding each other accountable to that, whether it's an ethics committee or not, but more, more than likely all of yeah. those, you know, that's unethical discussions that yes. we've had. What we're really doing is we're perpetuating oppression and we're disguising yeah. it as morality. Yeah. And the problem with that is that we then end up continuing to further develop rules that are for the least common denominator of our profession. That we, mm. we set these principal ethics of, here's what you must do for the absolute bottom amount of behavior that we expect out of each other. Now, there are principal ethics, and then there's the aspirational ethics of, here's how we should be. If, if we look at it as, you know, principal ethics are the floor, the bare minimum of where the lowest we should go is, we don't push a lot towards, here's how to be you know, more in the aspirational. We tend to focus yeah. more on these concrete black and white sort of things. So to answer your question, when we go through this teaching process and this emphasis that I really try to take in a lot of my teachings uh, in law and ethics is here's how to think through these processes that brings us closer to this aspirational approach to ethics rather than just kind of sitting through this black and white, you know, here's our, here's our floor, here's what we must do. And it's a learning process that for many people is very long and frustrating and drawn out. That what may seem to be an example that would be like, yeah, that's unethical. You know, don't, you know, you hear about a colleague sleeping with a, with a patient, you know, oh yeah, that's unethical. But the ethical thinking around that is what do you do with that? Yeah. And so that ends up becoming a lot deeper, richer, longer conversation. Yeah, you've identified something unethical, but have you acted ethically? And so this comes into some of the aspects of where our codes take out the individual aspects of the clinicians in being able to decide how to act within the ethics code and how to act ethically, because it is taught from this you know, authoritarian approach in a lot of cases. Now, there are plenty of good ethical teachers out there who teach ethics. The other piece that's missing in this is the large ignorance of other cultures. And it's a willing ignorance that we are seeing across a number of areas. You know, if you've listened to our podcast, but I'm going to be addressing, and not in a a ton of depth here today, but there are other, you know, not national 
psychological social well they are national but not you know the ones that people think of in the first place you know the black psychologist association the society for indian psychologists that represents native americans that are legitimate organizations that have extremely legitimate complaints about how the ethics codes push from a very white eurocentric model that don't take or incorporate some of the cultural aspects that don't come in you know, from that white Anglo-Saxon European model. Yeah. And we heard about this from Nam in our podcast last week of that our teaching methods, our, our style forces people to be, you know, speaking in this American way, writing in this American way. But when our ethics codes and the standards that we hold people to are, you have to be a bare minimum of white Eurocentric principles based in 80 years ago, people's minds, that we become othering even within the ways that we talk about how to even be good within our profession. So I keep coming back to that. What do we do with this? Because I, like you, I really like this idea of aspirational ethics that look towards what the standard should be. They look toward how we should operate kind of in our best, at our best, what we look like, right? And I think that can also end up being very biased because we're still so entrenched in the white Eurocentric, ableist, you know, hetero, sexist. Like there's, there's very, the, the norms continue to be, as we've had lots of conversations about, based on one set of a tightly defined group of people who were our first psychologists who created these and the initial ethics code upon which others have built. And so when we look at even shifting to a more aspirational model or looking at how do we move away from defining what the floor is and trying to protect against people that want to go below the floor of behavior, I'm just really struck by what that could look like because I I think it would still be extremely challenging to do that. Part of where we need to go with this is, and this should come as no surprise to longtime listeners of our podcast is not only looking at what's in the codes. Most of the codes are just kind of, they're, they're, they're just fine. Yeah, okay. You, you look at them, you see some differences from one code to another. You know, for example, students have been asking, you know, in a comparison side by side, why does this code say, you know, don't sleep with former clients for two years? Why does this other code say don't sleep with former clients ever? And you talk about different perspectives of, you know, this code makes cases where if you saw a client one time and you live in a small town and four years later you end up, you know, matching on like match.com that committee is going to be like yeah okay circumstances there fine yeah but one thing that consistently is missing from all of the codes is areas that look at us as individuals and the responsibilities that we have to ourselves now we have a lot of you know different parts of, of the codes you know our responsibility to our clients our responsibility to the profession as a whole our responsibility to colleagues our responsibility to advertising our responsibility to the legal system blah 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 no codes have 
any sort of direction on the actual responsibility that we have to have for ourselves. And a couple of these areas that I'll you know, tease just a little bit here in this episode. <laughs> Number one is all of the codes tell us that we should have some sort of responsibility to know the historical prejudices against clients who come from other backgrounds, which in and of itself is othering. Yeah. You have a responsibility to know why this group is marginalized in the way that they are. Uh, I don't know if I agree, agree with that completely. How is that other, othering? Explain that to me. It comes from a place of privilege and dominance in society that if that other group is marginalized, then we have a responsibility to know why. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So so the, the fault you find with it, not is trying to understand why people are marginalized, it's why other people are marginalized. It's not assuming that therapists are from marginalized populations. Is that, that's the othering part? Because I think- It's that our clients are coming from that position. But the part that's missing in this is none of the codes say that we have a place to be responsible for understanding how our background may impact clients. Yes. And while there has been a lot of discussion within the therapy field lately of especially, you know, kind of white allies or people wanting to do white ally work and a lot of the reasonable discussion around that has been, you know, you have to consider where you're coming from and what you represent when you are stepping into these actions. There's no ethical responsibility that we need to do that with our clients, that we should be aware of how our background may be something that impacts their access to therapy and their access to progress. I think that's a huge, huge gap if that's the case. I mean, I think that it's something where being able to understand where we sit in privilege or where we sit in marginalization, I'm hearkening back to uh, Dr. Sonia Lutz's conversation that we had on the podcast recently. I think that is that self-awareness and I think that's an important element. I think there's probably other elements like those things actually, and this is what we'll be talking about next week. And what I'm talking about in the conference is like the things that we bring into the room and how we show up in the room are extremely impactful to our clients. And so there's nothing that you're seeing about how we show up in the room. There's no ethics around that. Nothing that is codified. And this is further backed up by the Society for Indian Psychologist criticism of not just working with therapy clients, but within the psychology profession as a whole around the idea of using deception in research. And this is something that has been a longtime criticism within the psychologist field and has been discussed at length in the APA ethics codes. But the use of deception is a useful research tool. You know, here's a group that's a control group. Here's a, another group that's, you know, being deceived in some way for an outcome. And they're told afterwards, no, this didn't really happen. But when you come from the perspective of how the U.S. has treated Native Americans, you know, historically, this is a group that has been at 
the bottom of everybody's priority list. But the use of deception in research with research participants who come from this background, there's a whole lot of historical trauma and prejudice that can be seen there. Oh, yeah. Another part that's missing within the view of our responsibilities to ourselves is there is a case that ethically we should be putting ourselves in the best position to perform for our clients day in and day out. Now, there are definitely those principal ethics like don't drink and drive, you know, <laughs> you know don't, don't be a danger to society, but we miss any opportunity to go beyond the least common denominator of our yeah. profession here and actually encourage some of the best practices, best performance. We, we speak to it in our preambles of, you know, we uphold best practices of science and arts and all this kind of stuff. But what we don't do is say, put yourself into the best position day in and day out to do good therapy with your clients. You know, don't, don't stay up late. Don't go out to, you know, concerts until 4 a.m. and show up <laughs> to a 7 a.m. client. Like, yeah. Those are best practices of things that we all know, but many of us may make some of those mistakes. Well, and I think even in the way you described it, you're still talking to a certain extent, least common denominator. Yes. Right? And so I think the aspirational portion, but I, I, I do have a caution on it. The aspirational portion is about optimizing your performance. And this is obviously what I talk about in my talk. Uh, at the conference and we'll, we'll be addressing a little bit next week, but like being able to really go into how do therapists set themselves up for success and, and having those be best practices. And, and maybe you don't want to codify which are the best practices because science continues forward on optimal performance and that kind of stuff. But, but I think it would be wonderful if the ethical codes could actually support therapists in, in having some sort of a self-care practice or some sort of a, a practice where there's emphasis on therapists being the tool for healing and, and taking care of that tool for healing. I just worry when we get into ethical codes that start getting overly prescriptive that they can then fall prey to the same things that you're talking about. You know, optimal performance for who, you know, kind of are we are we looking at how people can show up? Are we are we allowing for different abilities and you know capacities in that process? And so I think to me, I, I like this idea of having codes that reflect what therapists should be doing for themselves or what we aspire to do for ourselves. But how do we add those things in a way that consumer protection bodies are not going to balk at because they want us to make sure that we're taking care of clients <laughs> and they want us to focus on clients. We're not recognizing that we have to take care of ourselves so we can actually take care of our clients, but, but also in a way that's not going to be biased in and of itself. This leads to my last point, at least as far as today's podcast goes, <laughs> <laughs> which is... I don't think that the ethics codes do a good enough job of separating out principal ethics from aspirational ethics. Mm, okay. That our ethics are kind of categorized by who we're responsible to. And there's very, very subtle language that differentiates things that are principal versus things that are aspirational. And differences being like therapists must versus therapists shall. 
And you can gloss over the difference between must and shall very quickly, especially if you know, you're taking a law and ethics test towards licensure where, all right, I've got an hour to answer 75 questions and consider all these other <laughs> things. Like, but those subtle language things don't take into account the humanity of how we're actually going to approach and read these codes, especially if we're being taught them in kind of this authoritarian way. And so I think that if we, you know, color codes the ethics to be like, all right, ones written in this color are principal ethics and you better damn well do them. <laughs> These other ones are like, all right, if you want to, you know, move up, you know, Kohlberg's scale of morality, you also, you know, ascribe to be these Also ones. do these things, yeah. It's a very subtle thing that I think is almost too subtle, which again comes from a place of privilege in how they're written and assuming that everybody else is going to go through this deep thinking of how we approach our codes, but doesn't take into account the humanity of how we've learned them. I like that. I think it provides guidance, but it also allows for people to make some choices because to me, I think the aspirational, I think anything aspirational is something that can be us at our best. Anything aspirational can be something that we we reset and try again the next day. But knowing what the bare bones, like you have to do these things and having something that's like, Ooga, ooga, this is the one, right? Versus if you've got a little bit more time and you want to be better, let's look at this. Like, I think it would make sense and it would be very, very helpful. And, and I think it, it, it addresses my concern about being overly prescriptive in ethical codes that will be, regardless of how well they are updated, will still have flaws and will still have bias because we're dragging along uh, the systemic elements that we don't apparently have a decade to fix. We would love to hear your ideas of what should be in an ethics code. And part of a longer version of this workshop talks about why some of the limitations on organizational codes are there. But join us in our modern therapist group because I'm toying with this idea of free from a collection of therapists. What would an ethics code look like if we? didn't actually have association limitations on what therapists should do. Now, that's a much deeper and longer conversation, but come join the yeah, Modern that's... Therapist Group on Facebook. <laughs> so we can talk about a free-form, non-collectivist ethics code? Yes. Okay. Uh, join the Therapy Reimagined Conference. Get your tickets at therapyreimaginedconference.com. And let us know on our social media what you think of the episode. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.